I'm Shirani Lanperma, and you're listening to Rubber and Rice, a Sri Lanka-centric podcast on political economy, history, and culture. My guest for this episode is Vinod Munasinghe, an engineer by training. Vinod is the former chairman of the Ceylon German Technical Training Institute and the former editor of business magazine Opportunity Sri Lanka. Notably, Vinod is also the son of Sri Lankan Trotskyist politician Anil Munasinghe, who was the Minister of Transport in 1964, and later the chairman of the CTB, Sri Lanka's public transport organization. You know, Sri Lanka has over 500 SOEs, according to the Advocata Institute. As we speak, major SOEs like Sri Lankan Airlines, Sri Lanka Telecom, the Water's Edge Hotel, and quite possibly the Petroleum Corporation and the Electricity Bureau as well, are on the privatization chopping block as part of our agreement with the IMF. Before we get into the details of this, I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of SOEs, because nowadays it's somewhat of a truth universally acknowledged that the government should not own or operate businesses. Do you agree with that statement, with that sentiment? And can you explain why the Sri Lankan government operated enterprises to begin with? Well, I disagree. If we go back to the history of uh, Sri Lanka, in the time of the ancient kings, basically all, apart from a few traders, all enterprises were state-owned in the sense that the entire property of uh, Sri Lanka, all the land mass, uh, was owned by the king, by the state, and all the irrigation works were done by the king. And basically the, la- the entire agricultural system was subordinate to the king. So uh, you, you have got an entire history in which uh, private capital plays very little part in the actual running of the country. Going further, with the arrival of the Portuguese and the Dutch, the biggest single commodity which was traded was cinnamon, which carried great profitability. And this was all done by the state, in the sense that the Portuguese state was the monopolizer of cinnamon exports in Sri Lanka until the Dutch came. And after the Dutch came, it was the Dutch East India Company, which had a monopoly. And the British continued that monopoly until 1830. The reason for them discontinuing the monopoly was actually uh, ideological rather than uh, practical. So uh, you can see that we have an entire history before the modern period uh, of state-owned enterprises. Uh, At the same time, in the modern era, we have got quite a few uh, state-owned enterprises which started out on, they were started out on a basic, purely practical basis, not ideological. Uh, For example, during the Second World War, the British were in a corner because the country was was surrounded by the Japanese. And uh, they started several industries for their own war effort. For example, they needed uh, cement for their fortifications. They needed steel for their fortifications. And uh, they needed boots for their soldiers. So uh, they started a a cement factory. They started a small-scale ironworks, a steelworks. And at the same time, they, they had the Department of Industries, which started manufacturing footwear, basically boots for the uh, army boots for the soldiers. And the Department of Industries as DI continues to this day as a trademark of uh, Ceylon Leather Products Limited, which is the privatized uh, version of uh, the Department of Industries. So what about in the 
post-colonial period, so after we gain independence in 1948, uh, do you see the same kind of support given to state-owned enterprise, or was there more of a focus on private enterprise? In the immediate aftermath of uh, the Second World War, when when uh, we got dominion status from the British, uh, the government actually uh, denationalized, closed down a lot of uh, government factories, with the exception of several such as the government factory and uh, the Ratmalana Railway Works, which is one of the largest uh, enterprises in Sri Lanka. It was due to the shortages of foreign exchange which drove us towards industrialization. And in the 1950s, this caused the government to to adopt a program of industrialization using the state-owned enterprises. And uh, actually, the, the, the burgeoning of the state sector in the sense of biz- state businesses really began in, in the 1950s. Right. So, I mean, from the 1950s, as I see it, there are basically uh, two distinct ways in which the state sector expanded. One is through the nationalization of existing businesses that were under the hands of the private sector. And the other is the state playing what some would call an entrepreneurial role in starting new economic activity. Can you speak a little bit about the latter? Because I think that's something that's not really discussed anymore in, you know, in Sri Lankan public policy discourse. Why was it that the state had to step in to introduce new value-added um, economic activity. Why couldn't the private sector do that? Well, uh, in 1942, the British attempted this. In fact, they started their uh, industries during the Second World War because despite a lot of uh, incentives given to the private sector, the private sector didn't participate in the industrialization process. The private sector did go into construction, but not into actual manufacturing, which was what the key field in which the government, the British government, wanted them to uh, get involved in. And we've got the same process working out in the 1950s, when um, the private sector tended to go in for, when it did go in for industries due to tariff protection and so on, they tended to go in for consumer industries, like biscuits, pipes for housing, and so on and so forth. Uh, whereas uh, uh, the government really needed to lay a base for industrialization. And um, to do this, actually, it turned to the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc to give us what was required from the point of view of uh, heavy industry. So as a result, we got, as, as the Russians gave, the Soviets gave us a steel factory. The Romanians gave us plywood, a plywood factory. The uh, East Germans gave us a very large uh, textile factory, and so on. So this was laying the foundations for industrialization, and they had to do it through the state because the private sector was not going to get involved. We did have private sector uh, participation in the uh, textile sector, but it was nowhere near the scale that was required. Apart from uh, in tea machinery, the private sector didn't really get involved in large-scale industrialization. What would you say is the track record of those industries? Because the way the history is told now, you would think basically that it was, you know, entirely corrupt and inefficient. And it was this kind of narrative that would later give way to the justification for pri- uh, for privatization. So, you know, particularly things like, like steel uh, or the tire factory or textiles. Do you think these endeavors were successful in achieving their aims? Did they have shortcomings? If so, what were they? 
Well, if you go back to when they were started, right? We were we were a country with basically without any industries. In uh, 1955, uh, the share of manufacturing in the GDP was four percent, and that consisted mainly of uh, tea factories and rubber factories. So apart from that, we had very little other manufacturing going on. So we ha- we were actually going into a, a field in which we had no experience. We had no expertise, and that is why we required the Soviet Union and other countries to come in and in, in, to uh, give us that expertise to transfer the technology. There were lots of glitches when we started out, but uh, overall, when the actual performance of these uh, enterprises was quite satisfactory. Uh, the steel factory was actually we only it was supposed to be built in three stages, but we only carried out stage. One in the first instance, stage two was carried out in the late 1970s. What were the three stages exactly? Uh, the first stage was to bring the pig iron from uh, overseas, the billets from overseas, and roll them. And the second stage was to cast the billets here using scrap metal. And the third phase was to use the large deposits of iron ore that we have and uh, make steel out of it. Oh, so, so we actually have iron ore in. We have uh, about twenty million tons of iron ore. Has that ever possibly. has that ever been uh, tapped into commercially? Uh, it was in the day of days of the Singhala kings, which was when the superficial limonitic uh, ores in the southwest were used for ironworks. And um, there, we have that famous example of the wind-driven uh, steel furnaces, which were the blast furnaces, which were uncovered in the. Uh, Samanella Vava area, those were using, they used the superficial limonitic ore from uh, that area, from the southwest. But in the modern era, we have But in the modern them. era, we basically haven't. We haven't gone past casting uh, our um, scrap metal. Uh, that's an example of the steel corporation, which managed to, it was fulfilling the demand for, at that time, it was a much smaller demand than there is now, but they were basically fulfilling the demand for steel. In the same way, the tire corporation fulfilled the demand for tires. I must give you one anecdote here. Uh, my father was serving as the chairman of the CTB, as you noted, and um, he found out that the Kalani rubber tires performed better than the imported ones because they had a high proportion of natural rubber, and they they were they were superb for buses. They didn't give such good performance for cars because they were not radial. We didn't have the radial technology. But once the radial technology was introduced, it was uh, went ahead quite well. And uh, in fact, the privatization of both the steel corporation and the tire corporation were more, more ideologically driven than by any necessity because they were losing money. In the same way, the hardware corporation, the hardware corporation was actually sabotaged to a certain extent because uh, the post-1977 government closed down some of the profitable sections of it, saying, and uh, thereby drove it towards making losses. The level of corruption that you found in the state sector until 1977 was very low indeed. Uh, to go back to the steel corporation, it, it blended well with our uh, institutions in Sri Lanka. For example, the, the railway department, in recycling its old carriages and its old uh, freight uh, cars, it would uh, strip those of their steel elements and there, there would be what we call this iron mountain in the middle of the Ratmalana workshops at the CTB. And every year, the steel corporation would take all that and 
use that for casting the billets. It was a very green kind of process. That way, I would say that they, they were very successful in fulfilling the tasks that were required of them. In fact, until 1977, uh, you would uh, go get about 50% of the state enterprises running at a profit. And you must uh, look at it from this point of view as well. Uh, say state enterprise is not concerned merely with profit. In some cases, it is not concerned with profit at all. It's concerned with the social good. So in some cases, they might run at a loss, but provide a service which is essential for society. So, and for example, maybe Paddy Marketing Board. Paddy Marketing Board, the, the water, water board, right? Right. And uh, so uh, you cannot, and or the railway. The railway provides an enormous service and it's actually underutilized in this country because most of its, uh, its uh, services are not used when there is insufficient uh, investment in it. And actually the question of investment is one of the biggest problems facing the state sector in that the government is very stingy about actually investing in what is required. Uh, when it comes to new contracts for buildings and so on, they're very happy to do that. But when it comes to the actual nitty-gritty of running the institution, an inst a modern institution doesn't consist just of machinery or uh, buildings. It consists of the software in human beings, trained human beings, and that not enough money goes into training those human beings. That is one of the big problems faced by the state uh, sector. So, and as I understand from what you've described, the government was basically starting economic activity in areas that were probably deemed too risky for the private sector, right? They were... Yes. essentially conservative and uh, didn't want to take the risk to go into all of these high value added heavy industries and, yes. and so on. I know, or at least I've read that there was some sort of interaction between uh, foreign investors and SOEs, as well as the private sector and SOEs in Sri Lanka in terms of transfer of technology and capabilities and joint ventures. Are there any examples that you can give, particularly from the CTB? Oh, yes, uh, for the, there's a very good example I can give from the CTB in that when my father was there, he gave uh, priority to locally produced spare parts. And he cooperated very much with the Victory Company, which made uh, road spring blades. So all the road spring blades for the CTB were supplied by the Victory Road Spring Springs Company. And uh, there was actually there was a lot of uh, synergy with the local local private sector industry. And uh, there was, for example, Demos made radiators and they bought the radiators from uh, Demos. I mean, running a, a modern service like a bus service takes a lot of inputs, which ordinary people do not see. For example, the Guerrero workshops were completely renovating the buses that were, had reached the, the end of their lives and putting them back on the road. They were servicing the buses. They were refurbishing the engines for the buses, things like that. And for that, they used a lot of inputs. The CTB actually set up a different uh, workshop to, to do aluminium casting in, at Panadura to do all the aluminium castings which are required by the CTB. So uh, it was not just the visible thing that you saw of a red and blue bus. It was a whole panoply of uh, industries which were linked together in giving, providing the service to the consumer. In the first place, you must remember that we are talking about Sri Lanka in the 1960s, which had no industry at the time. It was uh, basically it was building up its industry. And in fact, with the industrial level due to the state sector was much more advanced than it is now. 
because uh, there was so much being actually made in this country. So, and, so in a sense, you're, I mean, you're basically learning by doing, isn't it? You exactly, have to start from scratch exactly. to acquire that experience. Yes. And there are a lot of shortcuts that people can make, which, uh, which you don't know unless you've done it, right? And uh, you will find that when the transfer of technology takes place, very few of these shortcuts are actually taught to anybody because that then the country transferring the technology loses its comparative advantage. There was, an, there was an more examples that I can give you. I think, can uh, you talk about CTB and Fiat? I think that was... was that oh, yeah, that was a Fiat company came to sign an agreement with uh, the CTB. The CTB had decided that it was going to manufacture buses in Sri Lanka very early. And um, they put out a, a tender and Fiat was going to win the tender. And um, the idea was that with Sri Lanka would build Fiat buses in Sri Lanka and export it, not just to uh, for the CTB, they would export it to China. And the, it the Italians were willing to give us the entire Chinese market for their buses. Instead, today we are importing buses from China. So, And we, were, we would be at the cutting edge of bus manufacturing technology at the time because the Fiat buses were found to be extremely good. But the, unfortunately, the, the government changed and the following government signed an agreement with British Leyland, which was not so lucrative for Sri Lanka or which would have given Sri Lanka such a large advance industrially. Yeah. Uh, so going back to privatization and, uh, you know, there's, there's a host of SOEs right now that the government wants to privatize. I've actually heard recently that they want to get some things privatized by March, which is next month, as of the time we're recording this. But privatization isn't something new in Sri Lanka, right? Like we've we've been through this in the last few decades. I read some research that said from 1977 to 2005, Sri Lanka privatized about 98 SOEs. At the time, it was about a third of all the SOEs that exist, right? And including some of the ones that we've talked about, steel, textiles, tire manufacturing, and even state-owned development banks like the NDB and DFCC. In your opinion, what has been the net effect of this? Did we get desirable outcomes? What do we have to show for it? Well, actually, it's a debatable point whether we got anything out of it. People do point to certain things. For example, the restructuring of the telecom, which was part of the post office, and it was restructured as telecom and then partially privatized. And then there was the opening up of telephony to the private sector, which resulted in things people like dialogue uh, entering the market. And the argument is that it provided a better service. But uh, we, we can't say un because th that trajectory was entirely private. Apart from Sri Lanka Telecom, when you look at all the other services, now we, we have got one or two examples. For example, the Tulhiria textile factory, which was completely gutted and is now used as a logistics center when it was one of the most advanced textile factories in South Asia. Similarly, you get the case of uh, the Verahara workshops of the CTB, which were privatized, and were, again, they were gutted. And some very expensive ma machinery, which had been brought down, some of it had been actually fabricated here to manufacture buses, was completely <laughs> disappeared. One of the things that we learned from the privatization process in Sri Lanka is that uh, a lot of it entails closing down the industries by asset strippers. So that's not something that the government includes any safeguards for. In the case of other pl places, you have found that now for the steel corporation is doing as private is doing extremely well, but it does not fulfill the purpose for which the steel corporation was built, which was eventually to uh, utilize the iron ore availability in Sri Lanka to make steel. 
that trajectory has been interrupted completely. So we we have just got a company which is rolling steel, which is what we are what we were doing right at the beginning of the steel corporation uh, in the 1960s. So that basically, there's been no upstream or downstream development of exactly steel. Yes. That is the other danger that we get from privatization. Quite apart from that, that's the biggest problem is a loss of revenue. Now, when you look at what the government is planning to uh, privatize, you'll see that uh, most of them are successful. The more profitable enterprises are the ones that they're trying to privatize, not the uh, the unsuccessful one. Sure, because no yeah. entrepreneur wants yeah. to take on a loss-making asset, exactly. right? Exactly. The other thing that they're trying to do is to flog the assets of those enterprises. For example, the land. Now, I know for a fact that for many years, people have been eyeing the depots of the Ceylon Transport Board because they are built on prime property. They have no uh, desire to keep that prime property in the state sector. They wish to privatize it and let uh, and make let people make a lot of money out of it. But whereas that depot being there is more congruent with what the needs of society are. Then if you say put another high rise up there, thereby increasing the traffic, whereas here you are countering the build up of traffic with by having your depot there, and you but by making it into a from high rise buildings or whatever, you are increasing the amount of traffic without any safeguards against that. There's another point I should make is that in even in privatization, the privatized bodies managed to capitalize on the fact that the, they were the, the bodies were SOEs in the past. For example, we go keep going back to the steel corporation. Steel corporation still uses the Langwa trademark because the Langwa trademark is trusted by the people. When you go to the privatized cement corporation, you'll find that the most popular brand is Sangsta Cement, which is the cement corporation brand. Now, I don't think you can you have a better uh, argument for state-owned enterprises than that, that the most trusted trademarks in Sri Lanka were those belonging to the state-owned enterprises, not to the private sector. Because whatever said and done, the people of this country trust government institutions more than they do private sector ones. And with good reason, because they have had lots of <laughs> experience with bad private sector institutions. All concept of government sector enterprise, bad private sector enterprise, good, is completely faulty. That is proved by the actual practicality of it. When they go and say these are the private sector enterprises are better, that's an ideological point. It is not a practical point. They can weave all kinds of theories to prove that these are better, but that doesn't actually make any difference when it comes to the consumer. It's same with the CTB. I mean, the people prefer to go on the CTB bus than on the private bus for the same reason. So when you've got a situation like that, the only thing that you can say about wanting to privatize state enterprises is that it is ideological. If it is ideologically driven, my next question would be, what is the ideology and who does it benefit? Well, basically, it benefits several players. One of them is the people who will be buying the institution. Basically, the, they will not be paying the full value of the enterprise because the inter, most of the inter, value of the enterprise is deeply anchored in, in the enterprise itself, which is not visible externally. There are lots of intangibles which are not put in the accounting process. So they'll be gaining something much greater than they're paying for. You take the thing like trademark. I mean, have they ever valued the trademarks of the state institutions? No. 
they just value the property and the machinery and what not in many cases they don't even value those i think yes, the privatization of lanka sugar is a classic example they yes. didn't value the stocks they didn't value the fertilizer we had so many cases like that i think yeah so uh, the people who buy the privatized institutions are the biggest gainers in this then uh, you also get uh, the fact that when it is privatized a large chunk of it goes on to the stock market and one of the one of the ideologies driving this is the need for the stock market to expand and as it is the private sector is not expanding fast enough to provide the punters for a bit want to a better word with enough stocks to buy and the only way this market will be able to expand is by putting this huge amount of state enterprises onto the onto the chopping block so uh, that's the second ideology which is driving this uh, privatization and the third one is of course the foreign banking institutions they are very much ideologically against state owned enterprises because it expands the market for their investments as well this has been one of the biggest drivers for privatization throughout the world the world economic system is does not have enough expensive capability to suit the needs of the people who want to make a lot of money by speculating in these things and this drives a lot of what happens in the world today and this is one of the major ideologies driving privatization worldwide including in sri lanka one of the ideological defenses of privatization is often this appeal to competition to say that you know the economy and the market should be more competitive therefore we should give it to the the private sector uh, and that they will operate these assets more competitively than the state but ironically and invariably as we're seeing even now the first companies that step up to pick up these assets so first of all the assets everybody wants are the natural monopolies where you can't yeah. really have competition secondly it's global monopolies that come and try to snap these up so if you look at what's happening with our ports and energy sector it's adani and adani is a classic case of a monopoly back to the hilt by the indian government yes quite apart from that when you look at uh, how these how the business sector has developed in sri lanka you'll see that the entire economy is dominated by cartels for example you have the sugar cartel which makes sure that the sugar comes in at a certain price uh there's a cement cartel which makes sure that the cement is sold at a certain price and uh, so on and so forth everything is controlled so this concept of competition is very limited in this country you do not get what they call the free market because it is dominated by uh, cartels and monopolies it is very difficult to break these monopolies one of the things that stands in the way of the monopolies is a state owned enterprise so when you come down to the basic argument the state owned enterprise actually creates more competition by giving an alternative to these cartels and it forces down prices uh, for example you can see that highland milk powder is no not available in the market because it the moment it comes out into the market something is snapped up because it's good quality and people have trust in it they do not have trust in the private sector brands and and it's also cheaper if not for the highland milk you would find that the for the milk prices would be as it is they're quite un- unaffordable for the ordinary person but they would be even more unaffordable if not for the state enterprises being in the market 
So basically, I mean, the SOEs, they also play this function of proactively setting standards, at least yeah. minimum standards, as well as setting a, a price level, which yes. the private sector has to compete yes. with. Uh, there are two examples I'd like to quote immediately. Uh, one is the old PMB, the Paddy Marketing Board. Right. With the with the demise of the PMB, you find that the basically the market is being run by rice millers, and uh, the price does all kinds of things which it shouldn't be doing in an op- in a free market <laughs> theoretically. Uh, the other one is in the in the transport sector. The CTB provides a benchmark for price, and you will notice that the the driver for price increases is never the CTB. It is the private sector. Say even today they say that CTB is a white elephant, but in fact the CTB is breaking even. It receives subsidies, but those subsidies are the same subsidies that are received by the private sector for supplying services like school buses. Even with corruption, even even with everything, the state-owned enterprises are not necessarily loss-making. They are not white elephants. As I said, this is an ideologically driven rather than a practically driven um, move. If you are looking at the country as a whole, I mean, I'm not for a moment here saying that the entire economy should be state-controlled. But a large state-controlled sector is essential in order to control the economy, to keep it within the bounds that are required by the people. Now, you found uh, this happening in countries like China and Vietnam. China and Vietnam both privatized at a breakneck speed, but they kept a core of state-owned enterprises within the economy. And now those enterprises are being expanded faster than than they were earlier because they have found the need for these enterprises to balance the chaos of the private sector, to for want of a better word. The private sector, in my opinion, plays a very important part in Sri Lanka, but it is driven by profit. It is not driven by service. Because of that, you need the state sector to counter that, to provide safeguards for the population and to provide the benchmarks that are required for efficient functioning of our society. I'm glad you brought up the uh, examples of Vietnam and China. So I'm not that familiar with Vietnam, but I know with China, when they were privatizing in the 90s, there was this sort of uh, triumphalism in the West and liberal circles saying that, oh, look, you know, they're liberalizing, they're getting rid of state control. But within China, the the rhetoric was actually quite more nuanced, right? There was this slogan called, um, I think it was something like, uh, grasp the large and let go of the small, uh, which is basically code that what we're doing is cutting the fat from the SOE sector, but we're actually consolidating the SOEs we have and making the existing ones bigger and better. And we saw that with the recession in 2008, it was really the state-owned sector that stepped in with the stimulus and got the economic engine going. And even around the world with, with the BRI and even in Sri Lanka, it's really ironic that some of the best infrastructure built in Sri Lanka in the last few decades have been built by SOEs. They're just not our SOEs. Uh, If you look at the Fortune 500, I think one-fifth of them now are Chinese SOEs. Uh, Some of the most profitable enterprises in the world are SOEs, usually in the energy sector, right? So we have all these examples of SOEs performing well and objectively having a function within even a capitalist economy, forget communism, right? And yet this actually existing practice of SOEs is so starkly different from the way the conversation is structured in Sri Lanka, the way the debate is structured by, you know, the think tanks and the policymakers and uh, and all of those interest groups. I mean, in your opinion, 
what is the reason for this you know huge as you call it ideological kind of divide and how do we kind of break through that well uh, there's a conventional wisdom which unfortunately this country uh, lives by which is that the private sector is better than the public sector it doesn't pervade the whole of our society it is basically among the decision makers the fact that it's it's a top down dispersal of this ideology gives it much more force than if it came down from from below because if you go down to the basics i mean look at what the ordinary human being wants in this country he will complain about this he'll complain about that but he will go and shop in satosa he'll go on a ctb bus he'll uh, go to the bank of ceylon or the people's bank because don't forget the biggest banking uh, suppliers in sri lanka are state owned enterprises and this country would not be able to function without those state owned enterprises not at the level that we are now anyway so this ideology is basically one which comes down from the need for a certain class to obtain its excess profit frankly they, they are a rentier class they are not a productive class they are basically trying to reap the benefits of the productivity of others and this has become very dangerous for the country as a whole because we have become a a country which is dependent on foreign handouts to survive and uh, the biggest foreign exchange earner is our people going overseas to work and send the money back so this is not a very healthy economy and the kind of uh, ideology which is pushing this privatization is the same ideology that is making our society and our economy sicker and sicker as we go along so when you consider the profit motive is a very powerful economic weapon but it is not the only economic weapon it is not the only economic goal there is a much greater goal of societal good in which the profit motive does not cater for whatever the theory might be the hidden hand doesn't make society better it makes people greedier and uh, if you look at what's happening in the world as a whole you'll find that in one section of the world the rich are getting richer and richer and richer at a huge rate whereas the bulk of the population is finding its living standards falling i mean this is driven by the same kind of ideology go over to to europe and the united states you'll find that many of the crises that have been precipitated in the past have been caused by the retreat of the government from the economy in britain for example you got excellently working state owned enterprises such as british rail steel british steel the british coal they were all either closed down or privatized the irony of it is that rail services which are privatized are mainly owned by foreign soes such as the german and the french railway systems the italian railway systems so you'll find that the countries in which these state uh, enterprises play a big part the economy does much better than it does in the ones in which the state sector does not exist the lesson that we can take from this i think is that this is not an ideological question it's a question of practicality what are we going to do to go forward and if we just take these empty slogans and try to apply them so that uh, just a few people will will gain from it while the rest of society suffers well the economy is going to be worse than it is even now and to a large extent you can say that the the suffering that the people are undergoing today is caused by privatizations that took place 50 years ago regarding the state of soes now we know that 
whatever the original intention might have been in setting them up. Certainly, I think there's been some deterioration of them, sometimes deliberately, in order to justify privatization. There's been this deterioration and this uh, co-option by interest groups over the past few decades. And I think across the political spectrum now, there is an acknowledgement that reform needs to happen. And reform is often used as code for privatization. But I'm speaking of genuine reform, like genuinely changing the way these organizations are managed so that they better deliver public goods that they're meant to deliver. In your opinion, how do we begin to tackle those? What, what are the real problems and what are the progressive ways of addressing these problems in the SOE sector? One of the basic problems in the SOE sector is that it has not been modernized. Functions that should have been automated are not automated. And uh, even worse, the government has in intervened, especially the Treasury, has intervened to modify the org internal organizations in such a way that they are less efficient than they were. To give you one example, I was chairman of the CGTTI. One of the things that an institute like the CGTTI, which trains people technically requires, is to have an interaction with outside industry. That means that we have to have very good communications channel. Now, what the Treasury in its wisdom did was chop off from our establishment two places for receptionists. So we don't have an official telephone operator. We had a tel volunteer telephone operator. And when the volunteer telephone operator was not in her chair, there was no telephone operator. Volunteer meaning someone who is completely some, unpaid. Some, no, she's she works as something else, but right. she is not a telephone operator. She's a, a, a clerical person, but she has volunteered to become the receptionist. So she has not got the training for it. I mean, she she's good at it, but she, when she's not there, that place is is empty. There's no communication. Uh, that kind of idiocy has to be eliminated. One of the basic problems which has affected the SOEs is that the Treasury runs on this neoliberal ideology, which holds that you have to cut down on the number of employees in any organi government organization, refusing to allow new recruitment of skilled people, and they keep chopping the, the establishments so that they are not able to function the way that they're supposed to do. When these organizations were laid out in the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of thought that went into it. There were dreams and dreams of circulars which were sent around, which laid the foundation for efficient SOEs. Now, most of those have been thrown out of the window quite arbitrarily by the Treasury. Because the Treasury just thinks we're going to save money by chopping this number of uh, jobs. So, without having a scientific study of how the the organization operates, you can't chop and change uh, the position, the, the manpower within it. There, there has to be planning about where these institutions are going. How are you going to change the, the way that they operate? That has to be done in a scientific manner through studies. What, what does privatization mean? How do you know that the person who is buying it is going to be any better at running it than the present uh, mob? The whole point about doing reforms is supposed to be to improve the organization. And that cannot be done on the basis of ideology. It has to be done on the basis of practical scientific study. And that is what is lacking. Now, if you look at the government service as a whole, you'll find that there are no studies to see why things do not work. 
you, you get people complaining this government. That is no answer. There are plenty of governments in the world which function superbly. I mean, they, everybody here quotes Singapore. Now, Singapore has got a huge state sector. They have a very powerful state machinery. And all of that runs very well. But do we learn from how they run those machineries? No. We just use the ideology that Singapore is private. That's why it runs properly. They don't consider the fact that the biggest players in the economy are state-owned uh, enterprises. So we can learn from people like Singapore about how to run a state enterprise. There's no, no doubt about it. We, we have to improve our performance, but we have to learn from them and we have to make sure that the lessons that we learn are applicable in this country. And that means you have to study the situation. You have to study the problem. You cannot just bring a wheel in reforms without studying what this problem is. Wala kulin besa saman kulat